Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. And a pastor's worst nightmares come true that my iPad, my brand new iPad, is not opening. <laughs> so I'm going to do this off memory this morning. Um, let me try something here. Yeah, you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. And if this doesn't open... Oh, there we go. Thank you, Jesus. I, I could preach from memory. Well, thanks for having the backup down there. I could preach from memory, but I'm just not that good. So I need the, the Lord's help with this. Okay, thank you. I'll have that as a backup up here just in case. So I want to draw your attention to the screen this morning, and I want you to look at a painting. It may be a little hard to see on the screen just because of the way our graphics are. But this is considered the most famous oil painting in the world. It resides in the Vatican. It is painted by the great Italian Renaissance painter Raphael. And Raphael worked himself to death in painting this. Now the name of this painting is called The Transfiguration. The transfiguration. And I want to show you the difference here because what we studied last week is on the upper part of the painting. You've got Jesus and all of his brilliant glory. You've got Moses and Elijah there. It is wonderful. It's glorious. It's painted in bright lights. But then down below, and if you were to go look at the actual painting, it's got some ominous shadows because down below, the disciples are attempting to cast out the demon in the epileptic boy, and they fail miserably. So what Raphael has done is he's captured these two scenes in the Bible in a painting. The glory of Christ on the mountain and the failure of the disciples in the valley. The glorious transfiguration, the despair of failure in the valley. You can bring the lights back up. As we think about the transfiguration that we saw last week, Jesus was transformed before the disciples' eyes in all of his brilliant glory. Moses and Elijah were there to remind us that all of the Old Testament prophecies found their fulfillment in Christ. Jesus is there in front of them. The Father's voice comes from heaven and says, This is my Son, my chosen one. You must listen to Him. And so that's what we talked about last week. Followers of Christ must continually listen to Christ. And yet, only three disciples were given the privilege of being on the top of the mountain. Where were the other nine? They're down below doing ministry, doing life. And what happens next is a great juxtaposition between what had just happened on the mountain. 
Now, I want to remind you of something. We've been in chapter 9 for a long time because chapter 9 is a long chapter. But I want you to go back to the beginning of chapter 9. What are the very first words of chapter 9? It sets the stage for this. Chapter 9, verse 1, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Don't forget that. Jesus has empowered them with authority to cast out demons. Now, let's go back and pick up where we left off last week. On the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens down below on the next day? So let's pick up in verse 37. Luke chapter 9, verse 37. On the next day, When they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you, bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. The mountaintop experience is over, and now they're back in the real world, if you will, of pain, suffering, frustration, and sin. And from this passage of Scripture, I want us to see it unfold in in three truths or three parts or three portions. And so here's where we're going this morning. Two tragedies and one victory. Two tragedies and one victory. So... A double tragedy followed by a single victory. Let's, let's look at tragedy number one. Tragedy number one in this passage of Scripture is we see a helpless father whose only child is tormented by a demon. A helpless father whose only child is tormented by a demon. Now, I have to be very careful here that I don't get emotional, okay? Because... As I read this passage of Scripture, this boy has a lot in common with our son, Zachary. Our youngest son, Zachary, suffers from epilepsy. He has epileptic seizures. This boy in this passage is nonverbal. He cannot speak. Our son, Zachary, is nonverbal, and he cannot speak. We find that out in Mark's gospel, that he can't speak. And we find out that it's epilepsy in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 17, 15. The Lord have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So what this young boy is suffering is probably grand mal seizures. And if any of you have ever been around somebody that's had grand mal seizures, it can be kind of scary. Um, our son Zachary's had many over the years. 
He has different types of seizures. He has what are called atonic seizures where he just falls back. That's why he has to wear that, that blue helmet to protect him. And so I remember the very first time Zachary had his first seizure. Okay, this was back when he was seven years old, Ayers Elementary, first grade. I'm walking him into class, and he has a grand mal seizure. Basically, a very scary moment for a parent. And so if you've seen a grand mal seizure, especially from a little child, it can be kind of a scary thing to witness as a parent. And so this father is desperate because his son is having these epileptic seizures where he falls into the fire, he's convulsing, and so we see all these things. Now, there's a huge difference between my son and this son here. This boy in this passage of Scripture suffers really from two issues. Number one, it's epilepsy, a medical condition, seizures. But to compound that, this boy is possessed by an unclean spirit, by a demon. A demon that torments him. And I want you to notice the way that Luke describes it. I mean, Luke's a doctor, so he knows this type of stuff. Just look at the language. Verse 39, Behold, a spirit seizes him. He suddenly cries out. It convulses him. It shatters him. It will hardly leave him. Teacher, I beg you, Look at my son. Look at my son. It's interesting. Notice what the guy says. The father says, I beg you to look at my son. He doesn't say, Jesus, heal my son. He says, look at my son. Just look at him and see, if, see what you can do. So here you have a young boy, an only child, who's suffering from epileptic grand mal seizures, which is scary enough if you're a parent, but not just a medical condition, but being tormented by a demon that will not leave this boy alone, hurts this boy, torments this boy. He's the only child of this father. This father's helpless. This father's desperate. This father comes to Jesus and says, I beg you, please look at my boy. So here's tragedy number one. Tragedy number one is that you have a helpless father with an only child who is suffering majorly, not just from epilepsy, but from demon possession. And the father's at the end of his rope. So that's tragedy number one, just, just, just the, the situation in this family, a father and a son. Tragedy number one. But let's look at tragedy number two. You may say, well, where's the second tragedy in this? Here's the second tragedy. If there was a helpless father who had a son possessed by a demon, here's tragedy number two. We see the helpless disciples who could not cast out this demon. Helpless disciples who could not cast out this demon. Two tragedies of helplessness. The father's helpless, and ironically, the disciples are helpless. Now, this poor father thinks to himself, I don't know where Jesus is because he's up on the mountain, but I know his followers. And I'm sure these nine guys, I've heard they've gone around and they've been healing people. And they've been casting out demons. You go back to chapter 9, verse 1, and Jesus gave them authority to do that. So this father's probably thinking, okay, if Jesus isn't around, at least I can go to his followers. That's probably the next best thing. These guys must have some type of power. So I will go to all nine of them and see if I can get help casting out this demon. And here's the sad reality. Nine disciples could not cast out this demon. All nine of them 
Not just one, but all nine of these guys. And they had already been given authority. They had already been given power. So here's the question I have when I read this passage of Scripture. It's probably the question you have. Notice what it says there. Verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out. Your disciples, those nine guys, because remember the other three were up on the mountain. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So here's the question. Why? Why couldn't the disciples who had been empowered with authority, why couldn't they cast this demon out? Why did they fail miserably? Well, Luke does not give us the answer in his gospel, but Matthew and Mark do. So Matthew's gospel says it this way. In Matthew 17, 19 through 20, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? They're asking the same question. Why couldn't we do it? Jesus said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, and you say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So here in Matthew, Jesus attributes it to their lack of faith. Mark's, on the other hand, is very interesting. I want, I want to camp out in what Mark says. And, and Cindy, leave that up just for a little bit longer. Mark 9.28. When he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Hmm. This kind. This kind of demon. Now, I don't know what that means. I've thought about it. I think I kind of have a guess of what I think it means. Here's my interpretation. I could be wrong. But when Jesus says this kind, as opposed to other kinds, I think he's talking about a hierarchy of demons. There are some demons that are stronger than others. Now, don't ask me to explain all of that. Don't ask me to unpack that. But I do know that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I don't know exactly what Jesus means when he says, this kind cannot come out except by prayer. But he he says this kind of demon. Now here's the issue. The disciples forgot what it meant to abide in Christ in that moment of spiritual warfare. John 15, 5, I read this earlier. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We can do nothing apart from Christ. Remember what Jesus told them last week, or the Father, not Jesus, but the Father said about Jesus from the mountain, this is my beloved Son, the Chosen One. Listen to Him. We must listen to Jesus, abide with Jesus, spend time with Jesus. Why do you think God ordains trials in your life? It's to draw you closer to Christ. It's to draw you closer into fellowship, to rely upon Him. 
Think about it this way. If everything was going great in your life, if you're on the top of the mountain and everything's going good and there's no problems, would you even need Jesus? You would trust in yourself. You would coast. You would do things in your own power. You see, when you're weak, when you're frustrated, when you're struggling, when you're doubting, those are opportunities for you to trust in the Lord and to rely upon his strength. You see, Jesus had already given them an authority. Remember back in chapter 1, I mean chapter 9, verse 1? He gave them power and authority over all demons, even this kind. He had already given them the power and the authority. So here's the question, why couldn't they cast it out? Just because Jesus gave them authority does not mean that they need to not in that moment pray for power in that moment. Prayer was a way to draw upon that power that Jesus had already given them. See, here's what I think happened. Perhaps they relied on their past success and they thought they were experts at this. Hey, we've done this before. We cast out demons. It was a piece of cake. We've done this before. Come on, demon, come over here. We'll cast you out. This kind cannot come out by prayer. You can't rely on your past experience, your past expertise to deal with this kind, disciples. You've gotten a little bit inflated here thinking that you're all that. I can operate in my own strength and my own power. Thank you. I know, Jesus, you're up on the mountain, and I know you've empowered us, but, but we've got this covered. We can handle this on our own power. Bring the kid over here. We'll do the little thing, and we'll cast out the demon because we can do this in our own power, in our own strength. Here's the point. The power of God is available to us for every occasion that we face but sometimes we need to draw upon that power and ask for that power and rely upon that power and not just assume things. One commentator said it this way. When faith confronts the demonic, God's omnipotence is the sole assurance and God's sovereignty is its only restriction. This is the faith which experiences the miracle of deliverance. So let me ask you a question. And you're not going to admit this out loud, but all of us are probably thinking about this in our hearts. When you're faced with trials, when you're faced with difficulties, when you're faced with problems, when, when you're going through hard times, when you, when you think there's a, an obstacle that's insurmountable, how do you often operate? How do I often operate? We operate within our ability to manage things. Our plans. Our ingenuity. Our cleverness. If I just had the right plan, if I just had the right slogan, if I just had the right resources, I can muster up enough strength to deal with this in my own strength. We become pragmatic. We become pragmatic. What's pragmatism? Let me just say this. Our evangelical culture is infected with pragmatism. Let me explain to you what pragmatism is. Let me give you a definition from John MacArthur. He defines it this way. 
Pragmatism is a philosophy that says results determine meaning, truth, and value. What will work becomes a more critical question than what is true. Pragmatism says this. If it works, if it brings results, that's what we're going to do at all costs. Because here's the main thing. We don't want to be unpopular and we don't want to be irrelevant. So because we want to be popular and because we want to be relevant and because we want to be accepted by the world, we'll do whatever works regardless of whether it is true or pleasing or glorifying to God. And a church that goes down that path is going down a very dangerous path. The disciples were helpless. And they needed to remember that they had already been given that power back in verse 1. But here's the point. They needed a fresh supply of that power in the moment. And they needed to pray and ask for that power. Now, there may be some of you in this room who are facing what you would consider an insurmountable issue. It could be spiritual warfare. It could be a struggle, a trial, a conflict. In other words, you're dealing with what Jesus would call a this kind of issue. This kind has to come out with prayer. In some translations say even prayer and fasting. This kind. What I find interesting in this passage of Scripture, who's praying earnestly in this passage of Scripture? The Father. The kid's dad. I beg you, disciples, cast this demon out. Jesus, I beg you, come look at my son. The Father's begging. The Father's asking. The Father's praying. Do you see the disciples anywhere in this passage of Scripture praying? No, they're operating in their own power. So when it comes to prayer, I don't want to burden you with thinking that you have to spend an hour in your prayer closet on your knees for God to come help you. <laughs> now, that's important to pray and spend time in your prayer closet, but it could be a matter of in the moment saying, help me, Jesus. I need your help right now. Come to my aid right now. That's what these disciples aren't doing. They're not calling upon the power of the Lord in the moment. They're trusting in their past success. They're trusting in their own ingenuity. They're trusting in their resources. They're trusting in what they can do. And see, that's my greatest fear in ministry. That's my greatest fear in ministry as a pastor. I've been doing this thing long enough. I can stand up and preach and minister. I hate to say this in my sleep, but I probably could. But I don't want to do that. And it's my greatest fear for anybody that's in ministry, anybody that's, that, 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 that's serving the Lord, that you wake up and think you can do it in your own power because you've been doing it all along. We need daily, fresh experiences of God's grace and power to face this kind of trial, this kind of problem. You know, oftentimes we operate as virtual atheists at times. Well, we say we believe in God, but when it comes down to it, who do we really trust? Do we trust God or do we trust ourselves? 
You know, sometimes it's those quick prayers. Sometimes it's laboring in prayer. I think of Jacob when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night. Sometimes that's what prayer is like. Regardless of how you pray or when you pray or what it looks like, the issue is you've got to pray and ask the Lord to help you and not operate in your own resources. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous pastor in the 20th century, he was a pastor of Westminster Chapel. In the 1950s, kind of right after World War II when things were kind of settling down and the church was kind of getting lethargic in England, he preached a series of sermons on revival and spiritual awakening. And his very first sermon in the sermon series was on Mark's gospel's account of what we're looking at here. And let me, let me tell you what he said here. He says this, We must become utterly and absolutely convinced of our need. We must cease to have so much confidence in ourselves and all of our methods and organization and all of our slickness. We need a power that can enter into souls of men and break them and smash them and humble them and make them anew. And that is the power of the living God. We need power. So here's tragedy number one. A helpless father with a demon-possessed boy. Here's tragedy number two, the helpless disciples who could not cast out the demon in this boy. Because this kind requires prayer, dependence, a fresh um, empowering from the Lord. So, this account is all about weakness, helpless, inadequacy. The father's helpless. The disciples are helpless. Jesus is up on the mountain. He comes back down. They're probably, it's like, Jesus, we tried, we tried. The, the man comes. They tried, they tried. Everybody fails. So I said it was two tragedies followed by one victory. So here's the third thing we look at this morning. We see the victory of Jesus to overcome these tragedies. What does Jesus say to them in verse 41? Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long have I been with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Faithless and twisted generation. Now, who's he talking to? Is Jesus talking to the crowd? Is he talking to the Father? Is he talking to his disciples? I don't think he's talking to the Father. And I think he's actually talking to his disciples. He's basically saying, guys, you've been around me for a while here. And you still don't believe. You're still not getting it. You still don't understand. And so he says, bring the son to me. Now, I want you to notice that the demon tries one last, this is my opinion. I think the demon tries one last attempt to possibly even kill the boy. But because he knows, here's what the demon knows. The demon knows that He's going to be rebuked and have to leave the boy. So he's going to try to inflict much, as much damage as he can upon the boy before Jesus rebukes him and casts him out. Because notice what happens. Verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. That word threw him to the ground in the original language was used of boxers and wrestlers who would throw their opponents to the ground like a vicious blow. It was that kind of demon. This kind can only come out with prayer. And notice what Jesus does. In the middle of verse 42, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. 
and gave him back to his father. Don't miss the small details. Jesus doesn't just merely heal the boy, cold, calculated, distant. Okay, here's the demon, get him out, here's the boy. Now, what, notice what it says. Jesus healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Jesus here is showing compassion for this family. He's a healer with a heart. He's doing it with compassion, with tenderness. What does Jesus do? Jesus powerfully releases this boy from bondage and gives him back to his father. Now, what a beautiful picture. That's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. What has Jesus done for us? Jesus has taken us who were in spiritual bondage to sin and Satan. He's taken us out of bondage. He's freed us from that bondage. And what's he done? He's given us back to the Heavenly Father. He's taken us out of the depths of sin, the depths of satanic oppression, the depths of all of our bondage. He's released us and he's given us back to the Father. Because we were powerless to save ourselves. We were powerless to free ourselves. We were powerless to do anything. Only by sovereign grace can God come and reach down and rescue us and save us through Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't wait for some certain threshold of faith or some level of faith before he does the miracle. There's a detail in Mark's account that Luke doesn't give. So let's just go back and look at Mark's account. It'll be on the screen. Mark 9, 21 through 24. Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Don't you love it? Help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus, he comes to Jesus and says, If you can do this, Jesus. I'm not quite sure, but if you can do this, if it's, if it's all possible, could you heal him? And what does Jesus say? Yes, it's possible. All things are possible. I have the power to do this. Now, think about this man for a moment. When he hears that all things are possible through Jesus, they didn't have EEGs back then. They didn't have MRIs. They didn't have all the medicine. All he knows is that he's got a, a demon-possessed, epileptic son who is tormented. And he says, Jesus, help us. Help us. And Jesus says, all things are possible. Now, where's the power here? Is the power in our faith or is the power in Jesus? The power's in Jesus because what does the Father say? I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus, I have faith this week. I've got really weak faith. I'm not sure, but, but I'm just going gonna, gonna to trust you, Jesus. Because I know the power's not in me. I can't do anything. It's got to be you. And you realize that it's not the amount of your faith or the intensity of your faith. It's the object of your faith. Who's your faith in? Jesus. 
Let me just encourage some of you this morning. Some of you may be walked in this place and say, you know what? I have very weak faith. I'm hanging on by a thread, Pastor Sean. You don't know how weak my faith is. I'm struggling with my faith. And you know what? Jesus says, you know what? It's not your faith. It's my power. You can have weak faith and have a powerful Christ. Remember what Jesus said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10? He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's in your weakness that Christ shows up in his great power. His Father, help my unbelief. Jesus, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I've got really weak faith, but I'm trusting you. Jesus says all things are powerful. All things are possible through my power. So, so Jesus overcomes the tragedy, the two tragedies. What's the first tragedy? Just the son. The second tragedy, the disciples' miserable failure. Jesus comes in and overcomes that with his power. He, he heals this boy and gives, it, gives the boy back to his father. Now, how does the crowd respond to this? Verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, it's very interesting the wording Luke uses here. The majesty of God. That means the unsurpassed greatness of God. Now, here's the irony. What had those three disciples just seen on the mountain? Did they see the unsurpassed majesty of God on the mountain? Yes, they saw Jesus in all of his glory. As a matter of fact, Peter, when he's writing about the Mount of Transfiguration, we looked at this last week, but in 2 Peter 1.16, what did Peter say? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Same Greek word there, majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty up on the mountain, but notice what Jesus is doing here. In the healing of this boy, the people down below see his majesty. So here's the point. It's the same Jesus with the same majesty. His majesty was on display up on the mountain in its bright lights and brilliant glory, and his majesty's on display in healing this boy and giving him back to his father. Sometimes Jesus shows up in great, brilliant power. Sometimes Jesus shows up in restoring a family. The point is, it's the same Jesus, it's the same majesty, it's the same power. And I love the juxtaposition in this text. The same way you see it in Raphael's masterpiece. you got the power and the majesty and the glory up above the mountaintop. And then you got the confusion and the chaos and the failure in the valley of disappointment. So let me ask you a question. Where do you spend most of your life? Is it at the top of the painting or the bottom of the painting? Most of us spend our life at the bottom, in the thick of life, in the middle of disappointments and struggles and spiritual warfare, and crying out in desperation, in hurt, in pain. And so how will we respond? How will we respond? Will we seek the Lord in prayer? Will we cry out to God? Will we trust in the Lord? 
Will we, we embrace our weaknesses and know that when we're weak, he's strong? Will we say to Jesus, I, I kind of believe, help my unbelief? Or will we be like the disciples and tempted to do everything in our own strength? We'll trust in our past experiences, our past victories. Thank you, Jesus, I can handle things. I've done this before. We'll rush out with our ideas and our plans and our things to try to fix stuff, and we'll leave Jesus totally out of the picture, and we won't rely upon the transforming power of the Spirit. How will you respond? Here's my fear. My fear is that we get so comfortable in our own power that we forget that Jesus can do all things. May we never get to the point where we're, we're not astonished at His majesty. May we never get to the point where we don't think that we need Jesus. Let's not get to the point where we think we can handle things on our own. Let's not get to the point where we, we're never desperate for His power. We got it all together. Jesus alone can overcome your tragedies with his victory. And for most of us here, we're walking in the valley of disappointment. We, we face discouragement and trials, spiritual warfare and struggles. We're in the thick of life. Do we walk through thinking we can handle it? Or do we cry out for help? And here's what happens when we cry out for help. We hear the words that Jesus tells this man. All things are possible. All things are possible. Jesus comes with compassion. He comes with majesty. He comes with power. And he can overcome those struggles, those tragedies with his victory. So, let's not be like the disciples and not pray and not cry out to Jesus and think we can handle it. Instead, let's be helpless like this dad on Father's Day. Dads and moms and everybody in the room. Let's cry out to Jesus. And let's depend upon his power. And let's admit our weakness. And let's come to him in brokenness and humility and say, Jesus, I can't handle it. I can't figure it out. My plans have failed. And that's right when Jesus comes in and says, that's right where I want you to be because I'm going to overcome your tragedy with my victory. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And would you spend some time going before your heavenly Father, praying and asking and depending upon him because through Jesus all things are possible. Well, Father in heaven, we do cry out to you this morning. We don't want to be trusting in our own resources. We don't want to be trusting in what we can accomplish, our plans, our vision, our kingdom. But we want to come with humility and helplessness and desperation and cry out to you for help. I'm thankful, Jesus, that you healed this boy and gave him back to his father. What a beautiful picture it is of what you've done for us. You've, 
You've delivered us from the clutches of Satan. You've delivered us from the clutches of sin. And you've given us back to the Heavenly Father in saving grace. You've redeemed us from the pit of hell. Thank you, Jesus, for your salvation. And thank you, Jesus, that you've given us the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, thank you that we have your power. We have your supernatural power to draw upon in those moments of weakness, in those moments of desperation. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out prayer. It could just be a simple, help me, Lord Jesus. And thank you that you come to our rescue, that you overcome these obstacles, these tragedies with your victory. Would we leave this place this morning not trusting in our ability, but trusting solely in your ability to do the impossible? Will we walk out of this place with hope, knowing that you can do all things? Lord, if there's anybody in this room this morning that doesn't know you, Jesus, personally as Lord and Savior because they have not repented and believed in you for salvation, would today be the day that they stop trying, stop trying to work things out on their own, stop uh, running away from you, and that today would be the day that they trust in you for salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for all the ways you've been good to us. We praise you and we honor you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen and amen.